Electrician Conversations, a podcast for electricians hosted by an electrician. The Electrical Association is committed to keeping electricians in the know about the latest developments in the industry. Experts will be on to help answer the tough questions, talk shop, and give tips to make your jobs work. Greetings. I would like to welcome you to another podcast presentation of Sparkin' Conversation by the Electrical Association. I'm Mike Miller, your host. Once again, I would like to thank you for choosing this association podcast for one of your sources of information about what's going on in the electrical trade. I'd also like to extend a big special thanks to Federated Insurance for being our sponsor for this and many activities of the Electrical Association. Well, today's presentation is an individual has already enlightened us once on legal matters. Uh, I would like to welcome to our microphone this morning, Ms. Kate Bischoff. Kate is founder and CEO of Kate Bischoff, uh, LLC. She's a human resource professional, an employment law attorney, and an adjunct professor of HR compliance. Kate, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be back. Well, it's nice to hear your great voice again. So during your last trip into our studio, you provided us with a great deal of information relative to employment laws that had to be followed and what information our employee handbooks had to contain to be compliant. We know a considerable number of employment laws have changed. So I would like to be able to tell you this podcast can last for two hours or longer. But of course, we know that can't happen. But with the time we have, let's start with some of the most significant law changes for Minnesota State Legislature. Tell us what you can. Okay, so the Minnesota Legislature this session was busy, 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 making significant changes on a whole host of issues. But here are the, some of the ones that are the most important from an employment law perspective. One is statewide earned sick and safe time. If you have operations in the city of Minneapolis, in the city of St. Paul, Duluth, Bloomington, you already know that you have to pay sick and safe time, which in many it is one hour for every 30 hours worked, regardless of whether the employee is full-time or part-time, okay? This takes the Minneapolis ordinance and spreads it across the state. Now, as of January 1, 2024, every employer needs to provide sick and safe time. So that one hour for every 30 hours worked, up to a max of 48 hours per year, and then at 80 hours total in year two. So you can front load this by giving everybody 48 hours at the beginning of the year, but then they get to have by year two up to 80 hours in their bank at any one time. Now, the shocking thing about this is that it's so shocking. One, most paid time off or sick and vacation policies are already compliant with this law. So please talk to your neighborhood employment attorney about it because this isn't as groundbreaking as many people thought it was going to be. It is a simple tweaks of some PTO policies will get you in compliance with this one. It is not as earth shattering as the Minnesota Chamber of Commerce makes it out to be. The second one that is a really big deal is the additional protections for pregnant and nursing workers. Already in the state of Minnesota, there were some reasonable accommodations we gave to pregnant folks and allowing individuals who are nursing parents to take time to go pump their breasts for their children. 
This is an add-on that additional reasonable accommodations do not need a healthcare note or a doctor's note to say that they need it, like frequent breaks, sitting down, etc. For nursing workers, it is you need to have a policy about it. If you have a handbook that says we are going to accommodate our nursing workers, giving you a space that's not a bathroom um, so that you can do this. This is not, again, while it is a big change, it's not nearly as big of a change as it's led out to be. Because Congress had passed the Pump Act already, which gave a lot of these protections, this is just an, an additional one that we need, now need to tweak a handbook for. The other ones that are out there is the ban on non-compete agreements. The non-compete agreements was kind of a shock because it kind of snuck up on us. There was only one hearing in the Minnesota House early on in session about it. And then all of a sudden it was in the omnibus bill for the Senate and made it into the full bill. So no more non-competes unless it's the sale of a business. Now, a lot of contractors out there might be buying a competitor. And in that situation, you can have a non-compete. You can say, hey, person I'm buying this from, you can't compete with me going forward. That's a totally okay agreement. It is the non-compete agreement that we give to our folks that say, when you're employed with me, you can't go work at a competitor. I don't think this is as existing in the contracting industry, at least I haven't seen it, even though I've grown up in this industry. I just haven't seen it. The sale of business, yes. You can still have non-solicitation agreements. You can still have confidentiality agreements. You just can't have the no competition agreement. Minnesota joins Oklahoma, North Dakota, and California here. North Dakota and Oklahoma certainly being bastions of liberalism. I'm joking. They're definitely not. But this is just joining those three states in prohibitions of non-competition agreements. So those are the big ones that I see. There's one other big one that we'll save for a different podcast. But yes, those are the big ones. Kate, I have a question on that yes. non-compete operation. Now, I work for an association that's a great place to work at, and I have a non-complete clause. clause. My question, I think I know the answer, but let our listeners know, is that grandfathered in? Like, is that because now I have it, I don't have it? Or is that only those hired after the date that this law goes into that is affected by it? Okay, well, Mike, let's talk about that in a couple of different ways. The law says any pre-existing non-compete agreements are still enforceable. However, imagine being a judge in this situation. The whole entire state has said no more non-competes, and now you want me to enforce a non-compete against this guy? I don't think that's going to be the case, especially since judges are given so much latitude on non-competes. They have this provision called which allows them to modify an agreement in any way they want. And so with those powers, I don't see judges making extreme efforts to enforce these. If there's real damage, if there's real chances that there can be confidentiality stuff shared, that there can be customers stolen, that they you know the trade secrets are going with them, then I think a non-compete probably is going to be enforceable if it pre-existed the legislation. But I don't see it being widely enforced by many judges throughout the state just simply because someone went to work with a competitor. Perfect. <laughs> that sounds self-interested, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you're doing fine. You're on a roll. That, that's what it's kind of running. Hey, I have one other quick one while you're at it, yeah. though. In ref reference to the uh, the statewide earn sick and safe and whatnot, uh, Okay, so after 80 hours, 
compiled in the first two years, can I carry over that 80 more into the next or is it a limit of 80 hours? The employer is able to allow for more to be carried over, but the law only requires you to have in your bank 80 hours or more. So you can lose it, use it or lose it in this situation. So if I have, you know, 80 hours and I'm going to get another grant of more time on January 1, the cap in my bank can be 80 hours. Um, and so we are using sick and safe time as a means to bridge to other pieces, like what will happen when we have full paid leave um, in 2026. But I don't see it being something where we're going to be reinventing the wheel. There can be a cap of your bank of 80 and that's it. Well, I can see how you would say that this is one of the most significant years of changes of laws for employees. So uh, thinking about handbooks, Kate, what do we have to consider as contractors to upgrade our handbooks to meet the laws? So one, you're going to have to take a look at your PTO or sick and safe time policy just to make sure that you are getting the information in there that needs to be compliant. This needs to happen somewhere between now and January 1. For non-competes, you're going to have to make some changes to any agreements if you have them, um, removing some of that language, maybe adding in or maintaining your non-solicitation agreements and confidentiality portions of those agreements in there, but removing the non-competition agreement. Then for pregnant and nursing workers, adding some language into a handbook if you don't already have it in there about what kind of accommodations you may be giving or how to request those accommodations, just to make sure that they're fully up to date and what you need to have, uh, particularly around issues of what like leave looks like, et cetera. And then those are going to be the significant changes to handbooks this year. I don't foresee seeing any changes related to other laws that I haven't quite mentioned yet, including the Crown Act, which added uh, natural and protective hairstyles to the definition of race, where you cannot discriminate against someone based upon their natural or protective hairstyle. Um, then you're going to need to be able to be careful about what happens when paid family leave goes into effect in 2026. This is not an immediate immediate change to a handbook, but something that you want to have out in your to-do list, out in your ticker to take a look at, probably in June of 2025, about what those new policies you're going to add. Those are simply going to be minor tweaks of, you may be eligible for statewide paid family leave. Here's where you go get that information to whether or not you get that time paid. So remember, paid leave is going to look like something like I get the time off from my employer where that is unpaid, but the state is going to pay me for that period of time. It's going to work like unemployment. It's unemployment for being a new parent or having being ill yourself or having a family member be ill. So it is one of those things. It's not the employer paying for that leave. It's going to be an unemployment-like program. But again, we can wait for a couple more years before we add any information to our handbook on that topic. Alrighty. Well, the next question. Kate, the concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion comes up frequently among us a lot. Most contractors make a significant effort to be an equal opportunity employer, but may not have the full understanding of how DEI is part of that. Give us a little information on that if you could, because it seems to be some confusion. It seems like both of them are kind of leading toward the same end, but what are the laws on that? What should contractors be aware of there? 
So diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging are some of the most important initiatives an employer can take to be a good corporate citizen and also being a good business person. We know from hundreds of studies that those organizations that best represent the community that they work in are better places, one, to work, two, make more money, three, are more innovative, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list is really long for the business case of DEI. But diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging means that you represent the community that you live in. And so if you are an equal opportunity employer, and particularly if you are required to follow affirmative action principles, which may this very June may end by the end of the week or the end of the month. Um, if you're an affirmative action employer, you make efforts to be representative of the community that you work in. So if you have a staff of 20 employees and none of them are a person of color, none of them are women, none of them um, have a sexual orientation that is not straight, you probably are not accurately representing the community that you work in. And when you do, you can open up and unlock new customers, new innovations, et cetera. Um, one of the best examples of a lack of DEI is if you think back long, long time ago when Chevy had the Nova, okay, the Nova car, okay? Nova in Spanish means no go. So why would you name a car no go, right? Like that would, that would be like the antithesis of being a good car manufacturer. Chevy obviously did not have a Spanish speaker on their staff when they came up with the name of that car. And so the Chevy Nova did not sell in Mexico or South America because it had that name. When you are representative of your customers, the community that you serve, you can pick up on those kinds of things. And that's why DEI is not only important because we want to represent the community we're in, but we actually learn more and are better business people when we do. So. It seems to be that some folks think that being an equal opportunity employer and DEI can conflict in that if I'm using race to hire someone, I am violating the law. Well, that is absolutely true, but you're not necessarily using race when you're hiring someone. You are trying to find the best candidates. You are trying to find candidates within your community. And so when you make strong efforts to reach out to the other groups within your community to find candidates, you are going to bring in more diversity within your organization. These two things do not have to conflict, provided you are making concerted efforts to find good people. Okay. Well, you know, once in a while, and I was in that position as a contractor myself, where it was difficult to sometimes meet the requirements of a, a contractor bidding federal projects. You had to have a certain percentage of your workforce that was a minority at time it was considered as such. Of course, let's not use that term anymore. But the fact is, sometimes it's difficult. And and I think a, a person, I think what you've said, I guess I want to just compliment what you've said specifically, because gosh, that's what we all should be working toward, just because we're good people. Bottom line, yeah. we're good people. We certainly want to portray that image to our, our customers, our community, even to our other employees. And I think that would be easy. But sometimes, I tell you, it's very difficult to find someone that might need, we're trying to fit a job with a, a programmable logic controller engineer or, or somebody like that. 
it's not always able to find that position. So I guess my point is, is bottom line is really work at it because I, I certainly appreciate what you're saying and, and support it. And I think contractors, when they pick up that mindset and run with it, it's going to really be a blessing for them. Uh, I really right. do. So, right. I think, I think it's hard to figure out where you need to go to find people. Like, right. If you are simply refer using referrals to be your, main recruiting technique of who do you know who's an electrician? Well, we know that generally people hang out with people who look like them with the same experiences. So if you're only using the referrals, you might not be finding the diversity that you might want in your organization. If you go to places where you're not the same as everyone else. Like one of my clients uh, goes to Hispanic churches to find folks to work with them. And it's very similar to the contracting industry. They find folks, they talk to priests, they talk to pastors and say, hey, we have these entry-level jobs open. They'd be really great for someone who just graduated from high school or doesn't really know what they want to do. This might be a good job for them to start off and you know build into a great career because being an electrician is a great career, right? You can easily easily make, you know, more than $80,000 a year being an electrician. So this is a great career path. Once they've had those kinds of conversations with organizations that they don't necessarily find themselves in naturally, they build a much bigger diverse population within their employee base. And that is great for them. I can certainly see where it would be. That it makes total sense. Uh, here's a question some of our listeners may be curious about. If a contractor were interested in learning more about how these laws may directly impact his business or needs legal guidance or even information about changes that are required to be inclusive in the handbook, what should they do? They should meet an employment attorney. Now, I get it that nobody wants to meet an employment attorney. I understand it. We are seemingly intimidating people that cost a lot of money, etc. But you all need to understand where your risks are. And you can go to the Department of Labor and Industries website, Dolly's website, or the Department of Labor. But you can, often you can get bogged down because those websites are huge and difficult to navigate in some ways. So talking quickly to an employment attorney can definitely help you, particularly when there are changes to the handbook that need to happen or new laws that could affect your business. For example, you know, Minnesota has very strict requirements on what a new employee is supposed to know once they start through wage disclosure and wage theft notices, et cetera. If you don't know what that is, that's been in place for over a year now. And so we need you to understand what that risk looks like. So there are plenty of times, especially right after a legislative session, where talking to an employment attorney can be very, very helpful. Okay. I have a question that you've kind of just raised my interest in, and that is investigations. Now, of course, most employers never want to be investigated for anything, period, unless it's <laughs> at a good price. That happens sometimes. But the point I'd just like to ask about is, as an attorney, you probably represented people that have been investigated by the government for perceived wrongdoings. How does that work with, with all the new laws that are coming out? Do we actually have watchdogs or is it really just a matter of somebody turning us in that says, hey, this guy's not playing by the rules. Could you check that out? How does that usually work? And that's something a lot of people are probably wondering about. Well, there's different levels of risk. If you are 
doing work for the state or for a municipality, your level of risk is higher. You have a contracting official who is supposed to be looking at your stuff, making sure that you're doing wage theft notices, making sure that you're paying prevailing wage, et cetera. And that contracting official or officer, as they may be known, is very interested to make sure that you are compliant with the law. If you are not a state or municipal or county contractor, your risk profile looks a little different. It may be that no one is gonna come and ask you for anything until someone does turn you in. But wouldn't it be easier to get it right the first time and make sure that you're already compliant? Note though, that when an investigator comes knocking on your door, their first goal is to get you to compliance. It is not to shut your business down. They are not attacking you. It is, what are you doing that is or is not compliant and how can we get you to compliance? If you take the attitude that this is what I'm doing, I if I'm doing it wrong, please tell me, help me figure this out. The chance that you're going to get career or business ending fines and penalties is very, very low. Only in those situations where there is malintent, where there is a deliberate way that they're trying to either quote unquote steal wages from employees or they know that they're doing the wrong thing and they keep doing it anyway. Do we see the Honda electrics where we get huge judgments against them and there's possible debarment? We don't see that in situations where someone's like, I didn't realize I was making this mistake. Help, help me figure out how to do it better. When you have that attitude, the chances they're going to shut you down is very, very slim. But they want to get you to compliance because this is what the legislature or the department has said is most important and they want to get you there. What's great about being a contractor is that you want to have your own business and you want to do the work and you want to do it well. No one expects you to be an expert in employment law. And even though we put these laws into place, these laws are designed to help you do better in business so that your employees are happy, healthy, and safe. And so these are not punitive. They're not out to get you. But if you have that attitude that they are, this is going to be a painful experience for you. It should not be. We're here to help. You know, uh, Kate, I just got to tell you, I think that the way the person was raised is such an impact on what he becomes. And I think uh, we, our parents never encourage us to be jerks and ripoffs, but from time to time, they, they've experienced it and they, they profited from it un, unhealthily, I think. I mm -hmm. think it's great that they really think about what the impact of what they're doing is having on their entire future. And I think most people are pretty aware of that, but it's nice to know. Mm -hmm. uh, Kate, your knowledge and your uh, perspective have been most formidable and helpful, I think, to electrical contractors all over Minnesota and whoever hears this. And uh, I, I think that they really need to stay on top of the changing laws and, the, and of course, upgrade that handbook mm -hmm. as necessary. And so another program draws to a close. I'd like to thank our guest, Kate Bischoff, of CEO of Kate Bischoff, LLC, for taking time out of her busy schedule to share with our listeners information about changing laws and employee handbooks. Thank you, Kate. Are there any final messages you'd like to leave with our listeners? No, I, I God bless you all. I'm really happy you're out there doing this work. Keep on doing it. We need you all. Thank you. Okay. Well, again, thank you, Kate. I would like to thank our executive producer, Katie Grams, for her work behind the scenes to make this a podcast happen. Also, a big thank you again to Federated Insurance, who sponsored this presentation.
With that, I wish you all safe travel until you can join us again for another Electrical Association Sparkin' Conversations. I'm Mike Miller, your host. Good day. Sparkin' Conversations was a production of the Electrical Association. For more information, visit www.electricalassociation.com.